Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Head of Economic and Market Strategy at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $165 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. We're just at the end of Climate Week in New York City, which, taking place along with the UN General Assembly, has made bustling Manhattan an even busier place to be. Hotels are full, traffic is being redirected, and reporters are busy. But you don't need to look too far among all the events to see another topic gaining profile alongside climate, biodiversity. The term has been popping up more and more as investors, asset owners, and governments tackle the consequences of climate change and the way businesses and communities depend on healthy ecosystems to help make products and services and support everyday life. Here to help me get a grasp on what biodiversity is and what it means for investors are Ben Buckley, CFA, Portfolio Analyst for the ClearBridge Sustainability Leader Strategy, and Anna Calla, Senior ESG Associate. Welcome, Ben and Anna. We'll be setting the scene for a topic taking its place as a key investor concern alongside climate in today's podcast, Why Biodiversity Should Matter for Investors. Ben, Anna, I'm really excited to have you in the booth here today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Excited to be here. Now, admittedly, before we did this podcast, I had no idea what biodiversity was. Um, And after having our prep call, I'm really, really excited to be talking about this because I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of the next 30 minutes. So, Anna, let's start off with a 10,000-foot view, kind of an ESG 101. What exactly is biodiversity? And more importantly, why is it gaining so much attention nowadays? So the more technical version of biodiversity is the variety of life on Earth at all levels. So different species, animals, plants, different organisms that together make up healthy ecosystems. A little more simply, you can just think of it as nature or in the context of this conversation, we're going to be talking about nature loss. In 2019, on your point about why it's gaining so much attention, so in 2019, a global assessment report came out stating that over half of our GDP is moderately or highly dependent on nature. Wow, half's a big number. Yeah, $44 trillion. Yeah, this includes the fish we eat, the land we need for cattle, natural pollination we need for crops. 50% of all drugs are derived from natural resources. I thought that was a really interesting stat. And the global population, as it continues to grow and we continue to overconsume, we are degrading ecosystems at alarming rates. So we're warming oceans, reducing natural forests, and this is weakening nature's ability to provide these resources that are required for our societies to survive. So a little more simply, we, we simply can't keep degrading the natural world at the current rate. By definition, that's unsustainable. So I I pulled a couple of stats I thought were interesting. You know, 75% of the land-based environment and about 66% of the marine environment have been altered by human actions. Those are staggering, staggering numbers. Staggering. Yeah. Wildlife populations have declined by 69% since 1970. And so really all these issues as they're coming to light and again, increase increasing at alarming rates, it's really leading to this global crisis. And it's gaining a lot more focus on needing to halt or reverse 
this nature loss. Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning that you know, biodiversity is part of a broader picture of sustainability issues that the world is trying to grapple with. So a few years ago, we came out with the uh, the sustainable development goals as a sort of as a globe, which is a whole set of challenges we're trying to address. Two of those sort of specifically speak to biodiversity. So life below uh, water and life on land are sort of two of the of the seventeen goals that explicitly talk about biodiversity. But there's a whole you know array of other challenges we're trying to solve at the same time that are all interconnected. So poverty, hunger, access to education, access to medicine, access to energy, these are all sort of interconnected issues we're trying to solve at the same time. And biodiversity is kind of foundational to really all of those things and kind of foundational to civilization in general. We sort of sometimes forget that when we're in, you know, big cities and we're buying food off the shelves in a plastic wrapper, that it's, it's you know, it's, it's so intrinsic to everything that we do that it's, uh, you know, it's a, a sort of systemic issue we're trying to grapple with and it's it's something that is is part of that broader set of issues we're trying to uh, trying to address. And I know those, some of those issues are obviously front and center here in the U.S. We talk about them a lot, but how, how about globally, right? Like, what type of attention is this gaining outside of the U.S.? Like, this is a relatively new term, right? It's relatively a new term in terms of where we're using these these issues have always been around, but we're now really talking about it at this umbrella biodiversity term. Globally, I mean, Ben made a great point bringing up the SDGs, but this really first gained international recognition back in the early 90s. So early, early the 90s. UN, wow. Yeah. The UN held this conference on environment and development in Rio. And out of that came the Biodiversity Convention, as well as the Convention on Climate Change. The Convention on Climate Change has since really overshadowed this issue around biodiversity up until the last few years. So the world has started to realize we can't really solve the issue of climate change without addressing this issue of biodiversity loss. Then last year, the UN's Biodiversity Conference came out with the Global Biodiversity Framework. And this was adopted by almost 200 companies. People are calling it the Paris Agreement for Nature. And it's really a 10-year roadmap for a nature-positive economy. One of the main targets is this 30 by 30, so aiming to protect 30% of marine and land by 2030. So we're expecting, and well, we're already starting to see a lot of policies and regulations. We're expecting there to be this increased wave coming out of this global biodiversity framework, as well as, you know, the full cost of the full financial cost of biodiversity is just starting to be priced. And as we continue to do so, we're also expecting regulators to Ben's point further see this, realize the systemic risk that biodiversity loss poses. So we expect that to also contribute to this wave of regulation. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a number of different issues sort of underneath biodiversity that we'll sort of unpack today. But you can really think about sort of biodiversity and climate as like the two broad issues, environmental issues. And biodiversity, you can almost think of as like all the other environmental issues that aren't climate, <laughs> effectively. Uh, and climate feeds yeah. into it that we'll talk about. But there's a whole range of sort of nature-based issues. And I think, so what's, what's helpful for policymakers is to to make it one bigger issue that they can sort of talk about in in together. And while there's different elements underneath that, having sort of a broader goal of biodiversity, it sort of connects all those dots of those interlinked environmental issues underneath that I think is helpful for sort of getting global attention to this issue. Now, this may sound like a silly question, but what is driving biodiversity loss? It's obviously human development, right? Well, to go back a few years, so 
10,000 10, years ago, when we invented agriculture, we started having an increasing sort of reshaping of the world around us. And that has only accelerated in the, you know, the years since, really supercharged by industrialization 300 years ago. And it's you know, really enabled the success of the human race. That has been at the sort of expense, honestly, of, of a lot of nature. Population growth has been significant. You know, so is wealth generation, which has got tons of you know very very positive attributes to it. But it has created a stressor on the the natural environment around us. So, the, some of the reports that have been done have really broken it down to like five key drivers of biodiversity loss at a sort of more tangible level. So, what what are those drivers? Yeah. So the the big one is land use change. So deforestation, habitat loss, primarily for agricultural production. So now about half of the world's habitable land is taken up by agriculture. Half? That's a, that's a pretty big number. So a th- about a third of the land on, on the earth is not habitable. It's sort of glaciers or it's um, bar- completely barren land. So the other, the, from the remaining 70%, half of that is now agriculture. And, and I would imagine a lot of that goes to meat production, obviously, but uh, how much, if you know, um, what percentage of that land is like, Habitat, like cities, our homes, things like that. So it was interesting. Actually, this surprised me as well. It's actually much smaller than I thought. So it actually makes up about 1% of habitable land. I would have gone with 5%. I was thinking 5 to 10, yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, human settlements, cities, towns, villages, infrastructure, like roads, that kind of thing, all amounts to only about 1%, which is incredibly small, if you ask me, or surprisingly small. And, you know, the rest is sort of forests and shrubland and that kind of thing. But it's really this agricultural piece that is the main driver of like land use. You know, we, we need to feed 8 billion people. And by the way, the the Rio summit that um, in 1992 that Anna referenced, the population was 5.5 billion. So it's now 8. It's projected by 2050 to be 10. So that's creating a significant, that is sort of the biggest challenge we have is feeding that many people but without doing it in a way that is continuing to continue to degrade nature. And what are the the other drivers? Yeah, so the other the other four are sort of what they call like overexploitation, which is overexploiting of existing sort of land. So it could be like overfishing. So like a third of fish stocks globally are still being overfished. Overexploitation of the soil. So there's about a billion acres of land around the world, farmland that's been abandoned because the soil is so degraded. Think sort of the Dust Bowl in the U.S. in the 1930s. Sure. If you've read, uh, you know, John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath kind of thing. So like this, there's, you know, a lot of other things like that, overhunting, you know, water depletion of, of water tables that impacts local um, ecosystems. So that's the second one. The third is is climate change itself. And that manifests itself in things like it's ocean acidification. So the ocean is becoming more acidic. That is impacting like shellfish. So their shells are getting thinner. Warmer waters is impacting, for example, the salmon in in, in Canada are actually struggling to respond to higher temperatures. They need cold water to to survive. Wildfires, right? Wildfires. We've seen here recently. Yeah, so, and there's sort of some unfortunate feedback loops as well in terms of you know habitat destruction, which also increases carbon emissions and so on. So there's some nasty feedback loops there. The fourth one is, uh, is pollution, which is mainly sort of agrochemicals and that kind of thing running off from, from farmland and impacting ecosystems as well as plastic pollution. So a lot of people are probably familiar with sort of news around plastic pollution in the ocean and that kind of thing, which is being, you know, like trapping animals, being ingested by animals and causing those kind of issues. And that's impacting sort of the marine ecosystem sort of throughout the chain. And then the fifth one, which is a little bit different, has been certainly near to my heart this summer, is invasive species. So if you 
we're here in New York. The spotted lanternfly Spot, is the bane the of my existence this, this summer. And it's, you know, that came to the US, I think, just under 10 years ago from China and um, has had, you know, really explosive growth in the Northeast. It's effect, affecting crop yields. People are worried about sort of the uh, the vineyards out on, on Long Island, that kind of thing. So there's those are sort of the five the five big ones. Now, Ben, you, you mentioned climate change as a driver of biodiversity loss. Obviously, you know, there's no denying that climate change is happening. I don't think that we've gotten a big snowstorm here in the north, uh, at least in New Jersey, in like two years, which is unheard of. But maybe, Anna, can you talk to me a little bit about how they're connected with one another? Yeah, sure. So I had kind of mentioned that one can't be solved without the other. And that's, I think, what has started to gain help biodiversity gain a lot of this attention. So as Ben said, Climate change is a driver of biodiversity loss, but biodiversity loss is also causing climate change. As we're increasingly cutting down more forests, we're removing these natural carbon sinks that we have. So it's this it's this nasty feedback loop, as Ben referred to referred to it. But how they're connected? So there's there's different challenges with biodiversity than what we're currently tackling with climate change. So for one, there's only there's no one metric to measure the rate of loss of biodiversity the way there is for climate change, which is GHG emissions or carbon emissions. It's also very localized. So emissions are global. Reducing emissions anywhere in the world can contribute to tackling climate change, whereas overfishing in the Mediterranean Sea has very different effects and requires very different solutions than deforestation of the Amazon in Brazil. So both of these for these two reasons, it's really a lot harder to measure biodiversity loss and address these issues. But the one thing I'll add, maybe on a positive note, is that because it's more local and the effects are more tangible, it can be less political to address than climate change. So, you know, we'll see how that kind of plays out in getting policies and, and regulation passed. Yeah, it's a great point. It, it feels more tangible. You know, climate change is you know, emissions, you don't see the direct impact of that in your local community. You, you, whereas you do if you, you know, you're polluting your local lake or you're cutting down your local forest or, you know, those kinds of things. So it's a much more tangible and hopefully less partisan tan tack, uh, thing to tackle at a local level. Yeah, an easier problem to tackle, basically, if you will, if, you know, you have the right parties and the right motivators to do so. I want to switch gears here for a second. I want to talk a little bit about sectors, where biodiversity you know, loss is, is more relevant. Obviously, every sector, I think, is relevant. But has there been some sectors that are kind of front and center on this front? Yeah, so, I mean, I mentioned before that, the, you know, the food system is the, the big driver of land use change, which is a big driver of biodiversity loss. So, really, anything, any sector connected to the food industry. So, that you know, the ag producers themselves, you know, food processing plants, the consumer, you know, uh, food brands, uh, food retailers, the rest restaurants, all of those along that chain are all having a high, high impact and dependency. Maybe I'll go back and say, you know, normally we talk about sort of risks and opportunities for these things. I think another dimension that people talk about in the when they talk about biodiversity is is dependencies and impact. So, you know, is your sector or your product dependent on the natural world and does it have an impact on the natural world? For food, obviously, it's both. It's both in a very significant way. It's intrinsic to what you're actually growing and selling is is a natural product and you know your actions can have a big impact on on the world around the place that you're doing that farming some other areas like forestry is an obvious one so like timber production and everything downstream from that so pa paper and pulp 
producers, construction that uses timber frames, home improvement retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's are selling a lot of timber, that kind of thing. And then there's extraction industries. So like, you know, companies that are mining for minerals or mining for fossil fuels have significant like local impacts. You know, going back to your question before around sort of the the percentage of habitable land taken up, I actually looked it up for sort of the size of the, the mining industry in terms of land use. It's actually less than half a percent of the total habitable land. So you not, would think it's a lot bigger than that. Not a meaningful driver in aggregate, but obviously has very meaningful impacts in that in the local areas where it is is being done. And then you think about all, you know, really any sector that's downstream from it using those minerals. So talked a lot about that in terms of sort of the energy transition and the need for minerals for batteries and for really anything, you know, a lot of modern goods. So anything with electronics in it is have, has minerals in it. So a lot of copper, these kinds of things. So there's, there's you know, different degrees of sort of directness in your impact, but it's actually certainly in the supply chains of many, many companies. So obviously we talked about the sectors where this is front and center, but why does biodiversity loss matter to like just investors, generally speaking? It's a philosophical d- discussion in, in a sense, right? So there's, I think, I, I believe this, and I think many people believe this, sort of an intrinsic value to the natural world that shouldn't have to have like a dollar value or a business case to it. But there, there is also a business case in, in many cases, which is sort of, you know, one of the big ones for like the, the food supply chain is around sort of security of supply and supply chain resiliency. That's obviously been something that's been top of mind for investors the last couple of years more broadly. You think about like the social license to operate in terms of like your practices in an area, the reputational risk associated with bad practices in your supply chain, especially in the age of sort of social media and TikTok videos and things that people could take. So there's like a hyper transparency around around brands and their supply chains and obviously sort of regulatory compliance. So like the EU, for example, is coming out with a a deforestation regulation next year, where by the end of next year, all brands or all companies will have to ensure that they have no deforestation associated with the products that they're buying and they have to have traceability right back to the source. So that's a big initiative that's coming through in the next uh, next couple of years. So between the four of them, you have that captures a lot of a lot of business cases for companies. Just a quick example of of that. So you know one one company that we are familiar with is is Constellation Brands. So they're a, a brewer and a distiller. Brands are Corona, Modelo, Svedka Vodka, that kind of thing. And they um they were trying to trying to build a new facility in Mexico, in Mexicali, which is near near the U.S. border, and they actually um, got voted down in a referendum in the local community because there was concerns about the use of the water consumption of the of the plant, and it's quite an arid area and the impacts on the community and the local environment. So they actually had to basically abandon that. They'd already started construction. They'd put a lot of money into it. They had to take a write down of six hundred fifty million dollars in in the end. And really sort of brought to their attention the importance of having water stewardship efforts. And that was a couple of years ago. Since then, they've really stepped up their efforts and sort of learned their lesson from that. But it, it can, you know, result in material impacts to companies. Now, you mentioned Constellation Brands. I, I, I want to talk about maybe some of the conversations that you've been having with companies so far. And, and how's the kind of idea about biodiversity loss changing? Anna, any any thoughts? Yeah, I can talk about it at a little bit of a higher level of how we're thinking about it at ClearBridge. And then maybe, Ben, you can give some more specific company examples. Um, So these issues have always been coming up as part of our ESG integration and engagement process. We're just now trying to have a lot more targeted, taking this bottoms up approach towards this larger topic. So leading more informed engagements with companies that we've identified as highly dependent or impactful in nature that kind of Ben went into, making sure these risks are factored into our internal ESG ratings. And 
a part of this is, you know, we're working to find new data sources or more sector-specific tools to aid analysts so that they can identify these biodiversity risks and opportunities and have these more informed conversations and more detailed due diligence in terms of their ESG research. So I don't know if, Ben, maybe you can give a more specific example. When specifically our analysts in sort of the consumer-facing food and beverage and sort of uh, restaurants and food retail sectors are looking at sort of what are the material, environmental, and social risks that affect companies, they, they, they spend a lot of time thinking about uh, sourcing in terms of like sustainability of sourcing and practices, both labor practices and environmental practices in their supply chain. So, you know, examples would be sort of having robust sourcing policies. So like, for example, Costco you know, has had since 2011 restricts sales of sort of red listed seafoods, so in, like in highly endangered seafoods. It just refuses to sell them. It's not aware of that. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that until recently, either, actually. Um, but it's uh, it's something they've been they've been doing for for over ten years now, and they they continue to review that list every year, and they work with stewardship certifications as well. Or there's a lot of challenges in that space, but they've been active in that for quite a while. Same with Home Depot in sort of their their sourcing of timber and, and, and lumber. Sorry. So they, you know, they joined the Forage, Forest Stewardship Council in the late '90s, and have really had a focus on ensuring there's no deforestation associated with the wood, the wood that they're selling in their in their stores. But one example I wanted to highlight is sort of a bit more off the off the beaten path, if you like, is McCormick, which is a, makes sort of herbs and spices. You've probably got some in your in, I your, definitely uh, do. in your pantry. So what's interesting about the the herb and spice um, supply chain is that it's not sort of these large volume agricultural commodities that are being, you know, traded through, you know, multiple different brokers and so on. It actually requires working more with local farmers. Um, So they actually have more direct um, sort of connection with the farmers or contact with the farmers. And one of their top five sort of iconic brands or iconic items is vanilla, which actually is very difficult to grow. 80% of it comes from Madagascar, which is one of the most biodiverse, rich, uh, biodiversity rich places in the world. So top five uh, on some of those lists. But a lot of sort of endemic species you don't find anywhere else. Lemurs, baobab trees, that kind of thing. So a very, very rich environment there. And vanilla needs sort of rainforest conditions to grow. It needs moisture and so on. But deforestation is a massive challenge there for them. So they've been doing a lot of work. They have this sort of uh, grown for good framework that they've done where they're trying to actually have a positive impact on the local communities and the environment through sustainable sourcing and really working with local communities and and partnering with them to sort of provide direct support and to thousands of farmers and train them on sort of practices that will avoid the need, the need to sort of clear additional forests. Um, and they've moved from being sort of like around 10% sustainably sourced vanilla five years ago to now 100%. Wow. And that's sort of, you know, a very sort of tangible, sort of less well-known example of the kind of work that these companies can be doing uh, when they put their mind to it. Now, Ben, we've been talking mostly about limiting risks, Right. Are there any revenue opportunities for companies that are addressing biodiversity loss? There's not the same. If we think about relative to climate, there's not like a, a clean energy industry which has these sort of very large addressable market numbers that investors can get excited about. So I think it's it's worth starting by saying, you know, at the moment, very little of economic activities is sort of truly nature positive. It's mostly about doing less harm. Um, but within that, I think there are some opportunities for companies to contribute. There are meaningful things that can be done to reduce that harm, and I think efficiency is a big piece of that. So, you know, there's substituting a, a high-impact product for a, a lower-impact product. So one example would be, like, we talked about pollution as an issue in microplastics. So, like, 
single-use plastics is a big challenge for in the environment. Um, so substituting away from plastic bottles can have a meaningful impact. So, you know, that's a, a good investment thesis for, say, like the aluminium can industry, companies like Bohr Corporation who are making aluminium cans, which can be infinitely recycled uh, and replace um, plastic bottles. is actually a big sort of investment opportunity for them to take share from plastic bottles over time as as they sort of lose favor with with consumers and see more regulations to to restrict them. So that's one type of, of sort of revenue opportunity. The other is sort of more like on the, the impact reduction side. So a big area for that is like ag, agricultural technology, so ag tech, predicted to grow as sort of as a group of technologies, to, predicted to double by 2030. And this is sort of just using technology to be much more precise in the way you do your farming. So more precise administration of fertilizers, of pesticides, of insects. Like ro- robots that can go out and spite. So one of the companies that we own in the portfolio is, is Deer. It's a big like agricultural machinery company, but they have an increasing share of their sales coming from precision ag technologies. So they have what they call like a, for example, see and spray. So it's machine vision on the spraying machine. It goes along the field and it can actually see the plants. It can tell the difference between a healthy crop and, an, and a weed and it will spray the weed with with a herbicide and leave the plant alone. Much, much more targeted use of these things rather than sort of blanket spraying can actually improve yields for the farmers. You know, herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers, these are all expensive inputs for them, and it can be much, can greatly increase the efficiency of the use of those kind of chemicals in, in agriculture. So that's an exciting area. And then the third one is really around sort of like treatment of pollution as well. So companies like an Ecolab, which is treating water from, you know, industrial customers to ensure that there aren't sort of microplastics in it when it's discharged back to the water and that kind of thing, or discharged back to nature, I should say, removing toxins and so on. So those are three examples of revenue opportunities that we see growing as there's more attention paid to uh, biodiversity as an issue. All right, so we're coming up. Go ahead. Just Sorry, just one thing I wanted to add. I just think it's important to note, maybe Ben already added this, but it's growing, but it's still it's still small. And so it's not this issue and how we're addressing it within the economy is not where we are with climate change. I think you made a great point of energy transition, but it's something to keep an eye on, but it's still the invest investable opportunities are still a small piece of the pie right now. Yeah. And I think it's also important to say that the really the the most important aspect of this is is policy. Yeah. And having the right incentives for people. The issue at the moment is most of these things are not sort of priced into the market. So there's not the right incentives for the private sector to to manage these things. And there's a lot of growing awareness around that, but you probably need to see some additional policies to to orient the market in the in the right way. So we talked a little bit about biodiversity, right? We talked about the companies and the sectors that uh, has the key risks, uh, some companies that are you know changing the way that they're having a footprint in their local environments. Last question I really wanted to close with here is where are we headed? Anna, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you gave a good summary, but you know, the main takeaway I'd like to point is that we're the world and the financial industry, they're really mobilizing to try and address this issue. It's gaining a lot of attention over the last few years. Um, and there's a lot of new initiatives that are that are coming out. I just maybe could highlight a few. So just this month in September, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, it is a mouthful. You can refer to it as TNFD. They just released their finalized disclosure framework. And this is, I had commented how one of the challenges around biodiversity is measuring 
the rate of loss. So this is a great, this disclosure framework is a great initial step in trying to generate this more transparent investment useful data around a company's biodiversity risks. There's Nature Action 100 Plus is a uh, collaboration of investors that just launched that's engaging with high impact companies. The science-based target network is working to provide target setting guidance around nature. We're also seeing a lot of data vendors are building out their capabilities to better measure this risk. So there's still a lot of challenges. We've got a long way to go, but I think there's some some great movement happening. Yeah, and I think the you know the the global agreement that we saw right at COP at COP seven at COP fifteen to sort of you know to try and address biodiversity at a, at a sort of global level is is great, but it's a bit like the Paris Agreement in that in of itself it doesn't really change things. You need to see how that then filters down into like national or local or regional specific policies and specific incentives for for people. We think about like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., like specific dollars on the table for people to use to address these issues. So, you know, there's, I mentioned like the EU directive around deforestation. It's it's looking for those kinds of policies that can incent the right right behavior. And there's, there is exciting innovation, right? There's, you know, the, the market's very you know, ingenious in coming up with solutions to problems. And, you know, you, you're seeing things like vertical farming uh, to reduce the amount of land required. You're seeing growth of sort of alternative proteins, so there's there's different areas within within farming that are I think exciting. They're kind of too small really for for public market investors like us at the moment, but we're certainly watching those types of things. And then just more broadly, there's this term sort of regenerative agriculture, which is this idea of really bringing agriculture in line with sort of like what they call like a nature positive uh, approach, so that you're actually enhancing the local environment whilst producing food rather than having an, a detrimental effect. So there's, there's, I think, some some reasons to be some cautiously hopeful. Well, I think that's all that we have for time. Um, I just want to mention that this has been a fantastic podcast. I've learned quite a bit, and I know our listeners have as well. For those listening, I know that we're going to be releasing and investing in biodiversity white paper sometime over the next couple of weeks. I really encourage you to go to the website and check it out. It has a lot of these things that we talked about and some of these examples in more depth. Um, but obviously, this is a topic that's front and center, uh, and it's something that we're going to need to address, especially with the statistic, Anna, that you mentioned before, that 75% of the Earth's land surface has been significantly altered, 66 of the ocean area, 85% of the wetlands have been lost. This is obviously something we're going to have to deal with. But um, Anna, Ben, thank you so much for you know taking some time out of your schedule and sharing your views. Um, this has been a, an amazing podcast, so thanks. Well, thanks, Jeff, for having us in and highlighting this issue. Yeah, thanks so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining this uh, podcast. Well, we're going to be doing more podcasts as we move through uh, the fourth quarter into 2024. I hope that you have a safe and healthy fall. And um, if you have any questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of September 22nd, 2023, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.